0: I'm not going to say I love it either. Am I on now? Cool. Well, actually, it's not cool, is it? It's anything but. That's probably why Andre doesn't feel quite right. It's just so warm. Okay. Well, let us pray before we begin. Father, uh, we just come and we praise you. We give you glory and honor, and we thank you for this day uh, that you have given us. And so, Father, I ask that you would go before me into the words that I will say. Just bring uh, your truth, your light, your understanding to all those who are listening. Give you thanks and praise and ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are back into uh, Revelation. We are going to review, first of all, Kind of what we talked about the last time we met. Oops, that didn't go quite right. There we go. Um, and so, the last, the, the last big idea we were, we looked at chapter three verses one through six, and that was the letter to Sardis. The part of this that was the letter to Sardis, and in that, the sort of the big idea of that whole passage was that. Um, Jesus is telling the majority of the church at Sardis to stop compromising. If you'll remember, Sardis was the one that they just kind of got along with everybody. They had sort of gone and just completely um, gone over to the culture and sort of left anything uh, that was vaguely Christian behind. And uh, so that was most of them. But there were some that he reassured. And he told those faithful few that heaven is their reward for staying the course, because they were the ones that continued to uh, persevere. So just some insights from this, and there were just a couple. Uh, The first one really can sort of be summed up with the idea, are you more concerned about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you? I think that's something that we all have to think about from time to time. Because God will put us in situations where you know and he knows and you know he knows that he wants you to pray for somebody. And the question is, are you going to do it? Or are you going to succumb to cultural pressure or just the fact that someone might say, no, thanks, or, you know, oh, you're one of those Christians. So we have to... uh, We have to think about that and process whether or not we're going to be concerned about that. And secondly, he was talking about that if if you are a church like Sardis, which was not healthy, and you wanted to become a healthy church, then there was a prescription that was called for. And the prescription essentially was to realize your situation, to first of all realize you're sick, strengthen what's still there, Go back and remember the historic Christian faith. You know, all of those um, saints that have gone before us and all of the things that they have overcome. And then embrace that and repent from anything that's not healthy. Okay, so that's what he's essentially telling this church at Sardis that they need to do. Okay, so that was last week. So... um, Moving on to this week, today we're going to be talking about the church in Philadelphia. And uh, you see it on the map. But uh, Philadelphia was situated not only on this, this path that the churches took, but it was also on this major Roman road that, uh, led, that came from Troas in the west and then came east, and it came through Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, and then on to Philadelphia. So it kind of made this weird sort of loop. But it was a major road, and so um, that obviously made Philadelphia an important city because it sat on that road. Now, very similar to what we talked about at Sardis, Philadelphia was subject to a lot of earthquakes. And in um, AD 17, the entire city was devastated uh, by a major quake that hit that region. And um, because of that, there's really not much left of ancient Philadelphia. You, you know, if you were to go there, what you primarily will see is this city here, and it's, this, it's a city called Alaşehir, which actually means city of Allah, uh, and it's located in Turkey. But that's the modern city that now sits where Philadelphia had been. Um, now, there are a few remains left, very few, Uh, This is uh, just a little bit of it, but the only thing that really remains are the old Acropolis, um, some ruins from a 7th century church, so not even going back to uh, the 1st century, uh, called St. John. There's an unexcavated theater that's still there, uh, and then a small length of the city walls and a gate that are from the Byzantine era. So not much of the original city even stands today. Uh, now, the city got its name, interestingly enough, from, and there are, other, I've heard a couple of stories, so I'm not clear on which one is accurate, uh, but I picked this one, uh, from the loyalty between two brothers who were influential in founding the city. One of them was named Eumenes II, and then he had a younger brother named Attalus II. And so, um, the younger brother, Attalus, was getting a lot of pressure from Rome to turn against his older brother. But he wouldn't do it. And so that's how the city got its name Philadelphus, or brotherly love. Now, uh, even though Philadelphia and Sardis have this earthquake in common, um, the church in Philadelphia is really noted for only having a little power It's not a prominent church. It's not a stylish church. It's not an outwardly prosperous church. All of that kind of in contrast to what we saw at Sardis, um, which was impressive and looked good to the casual observer, right, but wasn't really, uh, there wasn't much there. You know, it, it just, it was all bright and shiny and pretty, but very little underneath because they had compromised their faith and had sort of just gone with what the culture dictated now because that there, there were so many lingering aftershocks uh, from these earthquakes a lot of the residents actually moved and they lived outside of the city because their houses kept falling down um, and so they would they lived out there and they would farm because the because of the volcanoes in the area the soil was very fertile and so it was a good place to farm. Um, They did temporarily take on the name, the city took on the name of neo Caesarea, and this was out of gratitude because when this earthquake hit, Rome understood that they were devastated, and so they exempted the entire city from from paying their tribute to Rome for five years. In other words, that they had money to try and rebuild and and keep the city. It was the... um, the the main pagan cult, because we've talked about all these cities and what pagan religions were there. In Philadelphia, the one was uh, worship of Dionysus, which was the god of wine. Sorry, Craig's not here today. Uh, He would have certainly enjoyed that. Um, But more importantly, I think this church faced a similar Jewish opposition that was similar to what the church encountered in Smyrna, right? Right. For example, the early church leader, Ignatius, stayed in Philadelphia on his way to martyrdom in Rome, and this was around 1 or 110 AD. And In his epistle to the Philadelphians, Ignatius warns the church about the dangers of a Judaizing influence, connecting it with the work of the ruler of this age, which very much correlates to what we're going to see that John has written to this church. So, if you have a Bible, that's the prelude. So now we're going to dig into God's word. So it would be Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13. We'll have it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but you might need binoculars. But I am going to read it. I didn't realize that would be that small. Uh, okay, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on our whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Does that mean? So let's dig into this a little bit. So, first of all, let's look at verse 7. These are the words of Him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What He opens, no one can shut, and what He shuts, no one can open. Now, the phrase the Holy One is used frequently in the Old Testament to really describe Yahweh, God. And it's also used in the Gospels to identify Jesus as the one who was sent from God. And then uh, the use of the word true, uh, who is holy and true, really indicates that is a reference to Jesus' authenticity and his faithfulness. And so in contrast to these lying Jews, the synagogue of Satan, it's Jesus who is the truth. And the others have rejected that truth. Jesus now says that he holds the key of David, now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's an allusion that's drawn from a passage in Isaiah. It's Isaiah, uh, the whole thing is 22, uh, 15 through 25. And uh, in that passage, it's where Eliakim is given the keys to the house of David. Now, in this passage, God accuses a royal steward of a of, of falsehood of lying, of betraying his trust. And God declares, I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your situation. Moreover, God would replace the false false steward with a faithful one. We'll just look at the last part of that, where he says, In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And so by referencing this passage from Isaiah, Jesus is really announcing that uh, all of the officers of apostate Israel are, are false stewards that they've been thrown out of office, they've been removed from their rightful authority, and they've been replaced by the one who is holy and true. The keepers of the door of the synagogue had excommunicated the the Christians, basically declaring them to be uh, apostate. And see, in reality, what Jesus is saying, it's you of the synagogue who are the apostates. It's you who have been cast out of the covenant. And I have taken your place as the true steward, the pastor, and the overseer of the entire covenant. So there's a lot in there. And, and, you know, we'll say it a number of times, but um, if you really want to understand Revelation, you've got to read the Old Testament. I mean, there are so many. It's like everything that, you know, if you don't, then it seems like this real mystery. But once you understand that so much in Revelation references back to the Old Testament, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. Like, oh, okay, well, that's what that means. So anyway, so next verse is verse 8. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, some believe that this whole open door refers to an opportunity for missionary work. But that's really not what the context would, would tell us. The immediate context text suggests that it refers in, instead to the entrance to God's kingdom that only Jesus can provide. And so Jesus is now assuring the believers in Philadelphia that he has opened the door of the kingdom to them. And no one, not the local synagogue rulers or the Roman emperor himself, is going to be able to keep them from entering that door. And again, this references back to the idea that they had been banned from the synagogues. So that door had closed to them. Well, this door is open. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. All right, so Jesus is now going after the hypocrisy of those that claim to be God's holy people, but they're in fact liars. And he even, you know, once again, this is, I don't know, the third or fourth time he's referenced them as a synagogue of Satan. And as I know I mentioned before, interestingly enough, there really is no such thing as Orthodox Judaism. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that you cannot have, if you genuinely believe in the Old Testament, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You can't have a belief in the Old Testament that is inconsistent or, or consistent with a rejection of Jesus as God. So see, you, you there, like I said, you, if you believe that, if you believe in the Old Testament and you believe in Jesus, you are a Christian. You're, you're not an Orthodox Jew anymore. Okay? So if you don't believe in Christ, you're really saying, I don't believe in the Old Testament either. And see, when these Christ rejecting Jews claim to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, Jesus says, You are liars. (laughs) He doesn't mince any words here. And so there's also in this passage kind of an ironic reference to uh, Isaiah uh, in uh, chapter 60. where God gives this particular promise to the covenant people who have been persecuted. And he says, The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so those who falsely claim to be Jews are really in the position of persecuting heathen. And they're going to be forced to acknowledge at some point the covenantal status of the church as the true inheritor of the promises that were made by Abraham and Moses. And like I said, you know, once again, these verses seem kind of odd and mysterious until you start to really unlock them and, and see that they refer back to Old Testament passages. And it's just full of that sort of thing. All right, 310. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Well, here Jesus is promising spiritual protection for those who have kept this command to persevere. You know, and that, that word just comes up over and over again in these letters. It's about persevering in difficult times. Now, it's important to note something here. Jesus is not promising to rapture them or to take them away. He's promising to keep them. In other words, he's promising to preserve them in the trials and to keep them from failing. But he's not promising to take them out of it. And the reason that's important is that this is one of the verses that dispensationalists have claimed for support of this whole idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. And I mean, if you read the Left Behind series, that's the take that they, those authors had on it, that at the time of, um, of the, the um, tribulation, the church, the believers, are going to be taken away. Right? And if you didn't believe... You're, you're stuck on earth. Well, if you really look at it, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, this says nothing at all about the end of the world or the second coming at all. This whole idea of the hour of testing that's spoken of here is identified as that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the land at that time. It's speaking of the period of tribulation which in the experience of the first century readers, keep in mind that's who this was written to, right? Not to us specifically, but it was written to those people who lived at that moment in history. And so here's the clincher to this whole argument. Think about this. Does it make sense that Jesus would promise this church in Philadelphia that he would protect them from something that was not going to happen for thousands of years? I don't think so. And I think obviously the answer is no. He's talking about something that is going to happen in their time, not something that's going to happen. It it just makes no sense if he would say that. They'd all be dead anyway. Okay, verse 12. Nope, that's still verse 10. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now, the temple of my God is really sort of symbolic of God's um, intimate and eternal presence, you know, in the new heaven and the new earth. And so, just as a pillar, you think of that as a permanent fixture, you know, in a temple or something. I mean, if pillar is here, and those pillars were to go away, we would soon see the floor above us, right? But they're their, their permanent fixtures. And so he's telling them that if you're victorious, you have a permanent place in God's presence. Think about that for a moment, a permanent place in the presence of God. Now that would have, that promise of security and of permanence well, that would have been very, very meaningful to these Christians in Philadelphia. Really for two reasons. Number one, we've already talked about, well, actually, we've talked about both of them. But first of all, they had been forced out of the synagogue, right? they have been kicked out of there. And many of them couldn't even live in the city any longer because of all the aftershocks. So permanency was something that was dramatically missing from their lives. There was really no permanency there uh, at all. And so, you know, never again are they going to have to leave their place of worship or their place of residence. They're promised this permanent citizenship in God's kingdom. And we're going to see that as we get further into the book of Revelation, especially down into chapters 21 and 2, Uh, where God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, and this new name represents a lasting security. But that's probably for, I don't know, 2018 or something. (laughs) Said we were going through Revelation. I didn't say we were going fast. (laughs) But you you begin to understand why we couldn't go fast. I mean, you would miss so much Of the richness of this book if you just kind of tore through it Uh, and so I think it's important to take our time and to really explain some of these things which a lot of folks maybe have have never thought of before so uh, finally he says I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and I will also write on them my new name and I think all of this really speaks to this full restoration of God's people to the image of God, as we see in the final chapter of Revelation. And that's the way it was supposed to be in the beginning, right? Genesis 1.26 And the Lord said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, right? And so one of the basic blessings of this covenant is contained in this benediction that comes from Numbers, where, where it says May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And I think to see the shining of God's face means to really partake of salvation in the fullest and to reflect the glory of God as his image bearer, which is what we are. And we've already seen that the name of God that's inscribed on our foreheads symbolizes the restoration of the redeemed man to the ethical and the physical glory, which really belongs to the image of God. And while believers receive the name of God, we see later that unbelievers receive something else. Not so nice, but we'll leave that for another day. And so one of the, the, the big insights, I think, that you can see in this message is that a lot of the images and the themes that are in here, the key of David, the temple, the pillar, the new Jerusalem, all of those things drawn from these Old Testament images are really indicating that the blessings and the promises that was first directed to the nation of Israel is now being given to the Gentiles, to the followers of Jesus. So as we have been doing what sort of application can we make from this? You know, what, what, are, what is something that we can take from this and, and utilize uh, as we go through our own lives? And I think there were a couple of things here. The first one is that success in our faith journey is determined not by our power or our prestige in the eyes of the world, but by our willingness to persevere in simple obedience to Jesus. The story of uh, Beth Ann Anis' attempt to qualify for the 1992 Olympic trials marathon is an amazing story of perseverance. Uh, if you are a female marathoner, in order to qualify for the trials, you have to complete the 26-mile, 385-yard race in less than 2 hours and 45 minutes. Now, Beth in this instance, started out strong, but around mile 23, she started to have some problems. She reached the final straightaway at 22 hours, 43 minutes. So she had just two minutes left to go down this final straightaway. 200 yards from the finish, she stumbled and fell. Obviously dazed, she stayed on the ground for about 20 seconds. All around her, the crowd is yelling, get up, get up. The clock keeps ticking. Now it's two hours and 44 minutes, so she only has less than a minute to make it. So she staggers up to her feet, and she starts walking. And five yards short of the finish, with 10 seconds to go, she fell again. And she began to crawl. And the crowd is cheering her on, And she crossed the finish line on her hands and knees in two hours, 44 minutes, and 57 seconds. There are a lot of churches, and I think a lot of Christians, who feel weak and powerless in the eyes of the world and maybe even in the eyes of other Christian churches. But I think... The words that Jesus spoke in verse 8 can reson- resonate powerfully with all of us. He knows that this church has little strength, and yet they have persevered in obedience. He knows you have little strength. He knows that. That's why I don't think it's a huge surprise when we fall. yet if we'll just continue to persevere in the same manner that this Olympic marathoner did and kind of took a whatever-it-takes attitude. You know, if I have to crawl across the finish line, then I'll crawl, but I'm going to finish the race. And how many people boast of great strength and yet substitute all these religious things for simple obedience you know once again it sort of reminds me of that there's a Stephen Curtis Chapman song where he's talking about all this Christian paraphernalia you know refrigerator magnet bumper sticker on his car he's got all these outward signs and then he asks the question but what about the change? And that's really what this is speaking to. It's, you know, do, are we forgetting that it's Jesus, it's not the world or even its religious leaders or what other people think about us that determines who gets into the kingdom. In those times, we would do well to remember the words that Jesus spoke to the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Second, there is, uh, well, let me read the point. God's people are not exempt from physical suffering and persecution, but will be protected spiritually from demonic assault. See, there's a big difference between God's wrath, you know, his condemnation and his judgment, which as a believer, you will never experience, right? If you believe. Okay. Thanks, Mark. It's like, why are you waving? Hi. Did you miss me? (laughs) Um, So this difference between God's wrath and the persecution in the hands of pagan powers, whatever those might be, which we all have experienced to one degree or another and will continue to experience. See, that was happening to the Christians in Philadelphia. They got kicked out of the synagogue, right? And you remember in Smyrna, I think it was, that they were dealing with the trade unions and not being able to find work because they wouldn't they wouldn't go along with the pagan practices that were associated with the trade unions. And so, you know, I've, we've said this before, but I think it's it's worth repeating because so often this is one of those things that's really easy to forget. The great Christian hope has never been removal from trouble, but resurrection from the dead. That's the hope right and so the book the whole book of revelation really doesn't make m- much sense if we say that Christians will never experience persecution i mean how would you explain <laughs> you know, the, the the first chapters 2 and 3 of the book and so you know we've got to abandon what i would call exemption theology right and that kind of goes back to this pre um, premillennial rapture Right? We're gonna. The Christians are gonna be exempt from all of that. They're, we're just gonna be gone in a second. All you'll see is a pile of clothes laying there. I don't think so. We've got to abandon that way of thinking in favor of what I would call endurance theology, which is made very clear by Jesus. We will always face marginalization from society. Always. And I think uh, Craig Keener is a theologian that I have several books by, Uh, and I think that he is right in that he he cautions us that in thinking this way, we've got to really emphasize the real reason for this exclusion, this marginalization, otherwise we're going to start to develop a victimization mentality or this persecution complex then you know then think well if that's the case then we need to pull back sort of like the um, the Gnostics did in many cases they, they pulled away you know and, and or you saw it a lot of the times in the me- medieval where you know seminaries or not seminaries but um, monasteries began to, to have favor because they thought well I just need to take myself out of the world and dedicate myself to prayer and, and all that But I think we've learned that's unnecessary separatism. And so the believers in Philadelphia were not excluding others or withdrawing from public witness, but were being excluded against their will on account of their witness. And that's what we need to keep doing. We've got to keep at this, right, despite the persecution. Now, how long? How long can you persevere? Well, there's some statistics I found uh, from National Geographic. Uh, Let's see. A human can survive for just two to three minutes without air. But if you train yourself, you can possibly hold your breath for up to around 11 minutes. That would take some serious training. Humans can survive for just 10 minutes At 300 degrees Fahrenheit, we're kind of getting tested today, um, children can only survive a few minutes at 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Humans can endure barely 30 minutes of exposure to 40 degree temperature water. You've seen those, uh, some of the videos of the SEAL training that they do. And they have to swim and the water is probably right around you know, 40, 45, 50 degrees, and, you know, the ones that don't make it, they pull them up out of the water, and they ask them basic questions, and they can't answer them. It's like, what's your name? How much is 2 plus 2? I mean, it's just, it shows that this uh, has has really started to affect them mentally. Humans can survive for up to 7 days without water. Humans can survive for about 45 days without food. Well, in these passages, Jesus commends his church for persevering in obedience under these trying circumstances and reassures them with this promise of his eternal presence. And I think it's a good time for all of us to sort of take stock of ourselves and ponder the question, how long can I hold on when a tough trial comes into my life? am I willing to persevere in obedience? Just to close this, I uh, found this letter from a missionary who had gone into the jungles of New Guinea. And you want to talk about an encouraging letter of perseverance. I've never read anything like this. I hope it's, it's real. Uh, I assume it is, but... You never know. But here's what he wrote. Man, he said, it's great to be in the thick of the fight, to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, to have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander, disease. He doesn't waste time. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you're on your back with fever and at your last ounce of strength, when some of your converts backslide, when you learn that your most promising inquirers are only fooling, when your mail gets held up and some don't bother to answer your letters, is that the time to mourn? No, sir. That's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah. The old fella's getting it in the neck and he's giving it back and all of heaven is watching over the battlements. Will he stick it out? And as they see who is with us, and as they see around us the unlimited reserves, the boundless resources, as they see the impossibility of failure with God, how disgusted and sad they must be when we run away. Glory to God! We are not going to run away. We're going to stand. Amen. All right. So in in trials and tribulations, got to put on that armor of God. Right. Talks over and over about being able to stand, to stand against persecution and so forth. Josh had to leave, and so we are just going to put on some music instead of asking our worship team to come back up. not sure right now what God wants to do. I just sense it's something a little different.